First solo no-hitter of the 2022 season comes from a prospect, baby. Plus, there's new facility standards for minor league baseball. Let's talk about it. You are Locked On MLB Prospects, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Yes, welcome on in to Locked on MLB Prospects, your home for all things minor league baseball. I'm your host, Lindsey Crosby, baseball writer for Sports Illustrated. Thank you for making this your first listen every single day. And recording this Wednesday afternoon, last night, Reed Detmers throws, uh, throws a no-hitter. Youngest angel to throw a no-hitter. And I mean, all around, it's a very surprising result. So when you look at Reed Detmers, kind of like his career, what he's done... He's never gone more than six innings in an MLB-level game. Never thrown more than 97 pitches. He's coming in the game. It's his 11th career start in the bigs. And he's coming in career 2-4 and four record with a 6.33 ERA. It's actually the third highest ERA entering a no-hitter since the earned run became a stat in 1913. Uh, this year, not m- doing much better. One and one, 532 ERA across five starts. And so it's something where if you're if you're putting down money on this, if you're on bet online, first pitcher to throw a solo no hitter, nobody had Reed Detmers. He's in the field. He's not even odds on the board. But no, goes out there nine innings, one walk, two strikeouts, 108 pitches. Actually, the fewest number of strikeouts in a no-hitter since Francisco Liriano in 2011. So, wild stat. But, Reed Detmers is now the youngest angel to ever throw one. The first angels lefty to throw a no-hitter since Clyde Wright in 1970. He's the 12th 12th no-hitter in angels history. And if you watch, it's really interesting. I mean... Very beginning, he's given up hard contact, right? I mean, Yandy Diaz leading off just crushes a ball, but he hits it right at the shortstop. Wander Franco crushes a ball, but right at a player. Hanram smashes a line drive, but right at Brandon Marsh. So, like, I mean, he's given up hard contact, and you're like, okay, okay, things are going to happen here. And then, second inning, Randy Rosarena pops up. Brandon Lau just fly ball, Mike Zunino, uh, line drive, and it just kind of carries forever, and they get it. And then in the third, he starts he starts kind of grooving. A soft grounder, gets a strikeout, um, a deep fly ball to center that Trout gets on the warning track, and it's like, okay, he's given up hard contact, but he's getting outs off of it. And then flip side, Corey Kluber is getting destroyed. He's just dinking and dunking to death. So Trout checks his swing and singles off of it. Two runs in the first inning. Next inning is the first five Angels that come to bat all hit the ball at 100 miles an hour. Uh, then you know Trout launches a 425-foot home run into the rocks in center field. And it's just like, okay, so he's got a lead now. That's fine. He's up like 5 nothing now. It's fine. Third inning, Chad Wallet goes out, three-run home run. They get two more runners on. Trout... Um, hardest hit ball the entire night. It's a ground ball. But Kluber comes out after three innings, 11 hits, 
eight runs, two strikeouts, two homers. So Detmers is in there, eight nothing lead. I guarantee you he's not thinking no hitter right here. Uh, never thrown more than six innings, like I mentioned. Never thrown more than 97 pitches. In college, he never went a full nine innings. Like, I, he's not thinking no hitter right here. Uh, this, this really feels like it's one of those, you got a lead, you go out there, you throw some strikes, you make it five innings, you get your win. And it was interesting because he's, he's, he's been a curveball slider guy. And you watch, he's feeling, he's, he's pitching really well inside and he's featuring the changeup a lot more. Uh, so he's throwing the changeup both sides of the plate, getting strikes. Uh, 19 pitches for the fourth and the fifth inning. A uh, couple of those balls were, were kind of hit. Brandon Marsh kind of had to bail him out with a running catch and left, but kind of going in there. He's at 49 through five, and it's like, okay, now you're at 50 pitches. Start the sixth inning. Now you can start thinking, okay, what's my pitch count? Where can I go? How deep can this be? Can this be a complete game territory? Uh, line out, double play. I mean, walk... Walked the first batter of the inning, so lost perfect game right away. But it's like, okay, double play, erased him, faced the minimum. And he, if you watch him at that point, you can tell right there something's different. He's throwing, uh, he's throwing first pitch change-ups. He's pulling out secondary pitches when he's behind in the count. He's looking for strikeouts. Doesn't get a ton. Um, you know, finished six innings, 64 pitches. But just... I mean, kind of, kind of gets into an ugly game. I mean, it's, I mean, it's eight nothing. It gets even worse. You watch um, Brett Phillips kind of comes in and starts pitching, gives up a home run to Rendon batting lefty against a righty. Thing that he, I think that was the only time he's ever batted lefty to a righty. And in the meantime, you know, Detmers just keeps getting balls in play, and they just keep getting outs. Uh, yeah, I just don't quite understand it. And then. Error at first. And when I'm watching it, Jared Walsh, so uh, reaching for the ball, gets in his glove, and he's off the bag. So he's, so Detmers is running to cover first. And you see Walsh kind of, he stabs at it, and then it looks like before he even goes for the transfer, he drops it. And Everybody just kind of stops and is frozen. And you're watching what is happening. What is happening. And then, boom, error comes up. It's like, okay. No hit is good. No hit is sticking around. Uh, He had to sit down in the eighth for a long time because of Brett Phillips pitching and all of that. But comes through. Finishes it off in the ninth. um, 108 pitches. No hitter. So, Really impressed with what he did. Really strange. He wasn't super efficient. I mean, one walk, two strikeouts. Didn't miss a ton of bats. Was throwing strikes. But the, the, when they were making contact, they were either hitting it straight to a fielder or they were hitting it close enough where a fielder could get it. So the Angels played solid defense. You get some, some BABIP luck. And before you know it, boom. Um, didn't have his best stuff. And he, he talked about that after the game. He said, you know, in warmups, he wasn't really feeling it in the bullpen. Um, and you could tell when you look at some of the advanced numbers behind the outing. Uh, he, threw, he threw eight sliders. Or sorry, Tampa hitters swung at eight sliders. Didn't miss any of them. 
Uh, they spoke at 19 fistball, uh, fastballs and only missed one. He just got them to, with the swings, when they connected, they connected in poor locations. So, yeah, fewest strikeouts and a no-hitter since 2011. And what does he do from here? I mean, he's not going to repeat as a no-hitter. Like, that just doesn't happen. This felt like it was a confluence of luck, confluence of good defense, things like that. And so, to me, this is something where, hey, feel great about this. Uh, you don't necessarily have to question, does he belong at the big league level when his stuff is good enough uh, to stick? I think he's maybe a little better than that 5-2 ERA he had coming into this game. Uh, I'm not saying rush out and pick him up in fantasy. I think that's probably a mistake to make. Uh, I'm sure some folks had him last night, and if you did, power to you for daring to stream him against the Rays lineup. I don't think I'd have done that. But either way, has shown and probably now hopefully has the confidence that he belongs at their major league level. In just a minute, I want to get into these new minor league facility standards and what it's going to mean for minor league baseball. But first, today's episode is brought to you by our friends at Athletic Greens. Uh, I use this product literally every single day. So AG1, their flagship product, is a combination of vitamins, minerals, uh, whole food source, superfoods, probiotics, adaptogens. And the idea is this starts your day off right. Uh, it helps your gut health. It helps your nervous system, your immune system, your, your energy, your recovery, your focus, and all of that. So every morning I get up. Um, I get up, I let the dog out of her crate, I go in the kitchen, uh, one scoop of athletic greens in, a, in the mixing cup they gave me full of water, go out in the back porch, dog does her business, I'm out there drinking athletic greens. Come back inside, start the coffee maker, go do all of that. And what's great about it is less than one gram of sugar, um, but it still tastes good, which is nice. And it just, it gives me the energy I need to start the day. It doesn't have caffeine in it. But I just kind of get like a mental clarity when I take it. And then obviously, rather than having to pop all kind of pills for multivitamins, you have AG1. Um, it comes with a year's supply of vitamin D. You can put that little dropper in with your powder, mix it up in there. But um, tr it's trusted by health experts, has over 7,000 five-star reviews. Um, just lots of positives to it. So it's time to reclaim your health. Uh, and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition. It's one scoop and a cup of water every day. That's it. There's no need for a million different pills or supplements to look out for your health. So to make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash MLB network. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash MLB network. We didn't pick the URL. To take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. So occasionally on this show, we do talk about the business of minor league baseball. And if you'll remember one of the very first shows once I took over this, uh, this production, we talked about some of the changes in minor league baseball with the restructuring. And in there, kind of was something that wasn't really talked about a lot but they, they issued new facility standards. So under the professional development license, which is that thing that gives you for 10 years, you are contracted to provide the player development services for this organization at this level. In the player development license agreement, there was new facility standards that are required of minor league baseball teams. 
Um, they were last updated in 1990, so it's been a minute. And uh, there are 19 different standards that they are that they have changed for all minor league teams from low A all the way up through triple A. Um, so we're going to talk about them. And the next segment, we're going to kind of break down what this means and what's going to change for, for fans, what's going to change for players, and the overall outlook on the sport. So a bunch of changes. The first one, any dugout for a stadium built after 2020 has to have direct access to a bathroom. I'm guessing they got tired of guys having to run down into the clubhouse to go to the bathroom or something. So there you go. Number two, plane service. This one, like a lot of this stuff seems kind of obvious. And this is one that seems kind of obvious, but I guess they have reasons because they had to put it in here. Plane service. The plane service should be free of trip hazards that jeopardize player safety. If a trip hazard arises, the team is required to rectify it promptly. Warning tracks should delineate 15 feet from all walls and fences. So that's the sides and the outfield. The fences should be graded so the playing surface is flat. And they define what flat is. Um, from baseline to dugout, it can be no more than 8 feet as far as slope. And then uh, from second base to the warning track can be no more than 20 feet. So it's not perfectly flat. I just knocked over stuff on my desk. It's not perfectly flat, but they define exactly how close it has to be to qualify as flat. Uh, number three is bullpens. I'm a fan of this rule. Uh, bullpens for any stadium built after 2020 must be built off of the playing field. Uh, and this is something where, you know, I also cover college baseball. And I have, I remember watching one game where players from both teams got hurt in the same inning, tripping over a bullpen mound that was in the, in the field of play over in foul territory or running into a bullpen bench. Like one of them, one of the teams lost a player for the season because he tore ligaments in his foot when he collided with the bench. So I fully get this rule. I'm on board with this rule. There's an, there's an add-on that says bullpens must be visible from both dugouts, either by line of sight or video monitor. So both teams have to be able to see who's throwing in each bullpen. Makes sense. Walls. All walls must be eight feet high at a minimum. No more you know, five-foot walls that a guy can jump up and fall over. Uh, in addition to that, all outfield walls and foul wa- and, li- and walls down the foul lines past the dugouts have to have padding that's at least eight feet high. So same thing. If the, I mean, you have to have enough padding where a player jumps, they're going to hit padding and not a hard wall. Uh, scoreboards or video boards have to have some sort of safety thing on them. So like if the bottom of your scoreboard is at that eight-foot mark of the wall. It's got to have some sort of padding in case a player jumps up into it, something like that. Stadium lighting. Number five, all stadium lighting systems, and there's a measurement they use for lighting called a foot candle um, because candle power is a measurement. And so this is like candle power over a distance. It's called a foot candle. Uh, All stadium lighting systems must have an average of 100-foot candle illumination in the infield, 70 in the outfield, and 50 in the bullpen. And then any new stadium or uh, stadium that has to install new lighting has to use LEDs versus the old um, halogens that take a while to heat up and have a weird temperature. Got to do that. Batter's eye. Every stadium is required to have a batter's eye. It must be 30 feet wide by 60 feet tall. Obviously, it's in dead center. Um, If the stadium's built after 2020, it has to be 36 feet wide by 60 tall. 
I'm really curious why there's an extra six feet required uh, if it's if it's a new construction, but whatever. Interesting. Uh, hitting and pitching tunnels, number seven here. You must have two covered tunnels for pitching and hitting that are protected from windblown rain, so they're sheltered, and they have to have professional quality netting. It's a safety thing, I guess. Um, number eight is female staff facilities, and this is apparently a big deal from what I've we've heard about some of the conditions at some of the ballparks. Uh, female umpires and staff of home and visiting teams must be provided with a private dressing, shower, and toilet facility. Must be reasonably close to the home and visitor locker rooms. Has to have a minimum of four lockers, two shower heads, two water closets, and two lavatories, and at least 200 square feet. So there's a minimum standard as far as um, what you have to provide for female staff, female umpires, female coaches, things like that. To go along with that, home and visitor clubhouses most, uh, must both be 1,000 square feet or larger and should have 32 player lockers with lockable storage. In the past, home had to be 1,000 square feet. Visitors did not. So this is a thing now where it's standardized across both. Both of them also, home and visitor, must have training rooms. There uh, must be 400 square feet each, at least. And then two training tables, two full-body whirlpools, a hydrocolator, a scale, a stationary bike, an ice machine, and a desk. So things that you're required to have in each room. So they give they dictate the size of the room and at the minimum of what has to be in there. An umpire facility. Uh, private room for dressing, shower, toilet facilities. With as many lockers is as customary for the number of umpires at that level. Not every... I believe single A uses like three umpires, sometimes two, whereas obviously it's four, you know, when you get to triple A, things like that. So has to be 200 square feet. Um, MLB officials must have certain space. So in the press box, you must have two spaces for MLB personnel to operate the video and the tracking equipment. So your track man, that kind of stuff. Um, they have to have two spots for a PA announcer and a scoreboard operator. So you're required to have these four spots put aside in the press box. You must also have 50 square feet reserved for the parent club, the parent MLB club. If they want to send an official down to watch a, a, a scout, a member of the front office, you got to have space for them. As well as you must have a minimum standard or 50 megabit per second or faster dedicated Wi-Fi for the press box. As somebody who sat in plenty of college press boxes, yes, please require minimum bandwidth. I love that. Uh, you have to have a security command post, number 13 here. There has to be a centrally located command post for security that has 24-7 player, uh, video surveillance of staff and player parking areas, the entrances to the home and visitor clubhouses, female staff facilities, and umpire staff facilities. Not inside the facilities, just access to them. So if you can, during the game, you can see who goes in and out of the clubhouses. Before and after, you can see who's going in and out of the locker rooms, the umpires, the female staff, things like that. Food areas. Uh, you have to have dedicated food areas for each team separate from the clubhouse. So you can't you can't just make them you can't just give them a table on the side of the clubhouse and let them prep food in there. You have to have a dedicated space and their specifications for it in there for them to to prep food for the players because nutrition's a much bigger deal than it was in 1990. Weight room have to have a weight room of at least 750 square feet. Uh, equipment room you have to have at least 300 feet of lockable storage near the home clubhouse, and then another 300 feet of lockable storage set aside for the MLB team year-round. So if this is your, your, your 
A-ball facility in Florida and your MLB team does spring training there, they've got 300 square feet that they can store whatever they want all year. That's their space to use whenever. Um, they can put practice devices. They can put, I mean, whatever it might be. They have that. Um, irrigation systems. Every field has to have a full field irrigation system. And then there's more rules if it's built after 2020. It has to be able to discharge 60 gallons per minute. It has to have a quick coupler behind home plate. has to have one behind the pitcher's mound and have to have one near the bullpens. So, And then the last thing is drainage. Every stadium built after 2020 has to have a subsurface drainage system. So 19 things that are required uh, all ballparks to have eventually. A lot of stuff, I know. In just a second, I'm going to tell you what this is going to mean for minor league teams and how this is going to work. But first, today's episode is brought to you by our friends at BetOnline. Uh, Our partners at BetOnline continue to be the number one source for all your betting needs and sports info. You can get the latest odds, news, sports developments, obviously basketball playoffs, Major League Baseball scores, fights, even next season's NFL futures. So BetOnline is your continued source for your sports wagering information, live betting, playoff, esports, and more. Head to the website today or use your mobile device to learn more about the trends in action because Bet Online is where the game starts. Okay, so obviously the biggest thing here is you have to do this stuff. And if you are not in compliance by a certain point in time, you can lose your player development license. So it's not going to start right away. They're going to give teams time to get in compliance. So the way that this works is everything in that list of 19 things they have given a point value to. Now, I don't have the exact list of, of all of those, but they've given a point, um, a point threshold to. And what they do is they add up the number of points in April of every year, starting in 2023, and you have to be below a certain threshold. So you have to be below 30 points in April 23. You have to be below 20 points in April 24. And no more than 10 points from April 2025 and on. And again, non-compliance means you can lose your team. They could pull the player development license and now you no longer are a affiliate of the Angels or of the Rays or whatever it might be. And the point system is interesting to me because some things are small point amounts and some things are really big. So almost everything in the facility standards is a one-point violation. Like, if you don't have a storage cabinet in the visitor's uh, food prep and eating area, that's a point. Um, you know, the, the, if you don't have a security command post, that's a point. But then some of these things are two or three. If the bullpen is on the field versus off the field, that's like three points. Um, if the height or slope of the mounds or of the outfield isn't within regulation, that's three points. If you don't have 24-7 video surveillance, that's two points. And J.J. Cooper of Baseball America has a couple pieces that that went up Tuesday and Wednesday all about this. I'll link to the main one in the show notes. He kind of goes into a lot of these things. There are some things that if you don't have it, it's an automatic 10-point violation, which means in 2025, you have to have done this stuff. So a lack of a primary internet connection. Um... Having fewer than 30 visitors lockers, 10 points. Um, having less than 150 square feet in the visitor's training room is 10 points. Um, having less than 70 foot candles of lighting in the infield is 10 points. So like things that you have to fix. And the interesting things here, and JJ goes into detail on this in the piece, is every change in there 
is about player and player development. The 1990 agreement, which was monumental for reasons I'll explain in a second, the 1990 agreement had a lot of stuff in there about the fan experience as well, like a minimum ballpark sizes as far as attendance, things like that. This one's almost entirely player and player development things or staff. And I think a reason for that is uh, we've kind of realized that owners will spend the money to upgrade the fan experience because they make more money that way. But they won't necessarily spend the money to upgrade the facilities for the players because they don't make money that way. They make money off of selling tickets to fans. So, and like I said, the last one in 1990, it had minimum rules for fan experience as well. And you can see the effects of that because 80% of all minor league parks parks opened at or after 1992. So when the planning and the construction of those parks was go- were going on, the 1990 standards were in effect. And most of the parks came out after that. They've since, a lot of them have been upgraded with different uh, facilities for the fans, but not the player stuff. And so what's going on and what's happening now is there are teams that are in the middle of getting new parks already. Uh, and like the, the one I'm thinking of is the Smokies. The, so in Tennessee, uh, the Chattanooga Lookouts are going are to become the Smokies. They're getting a new ballpark, I think, in about a year and a half or so. And the, it's a publicly funded park. But the question I have now is, if they have to adjust the design to make up for all of this stuff, how's the funding going to work? Because oftentimes on municipal projects and things like that, is you have a projection, you have plans, you have guaranteed X amount of funding. We need $80 million for a new stadium. Okay, great. Then we go out and we solicit bids to build the stadium. It's a, pub, it's a governmental entity. They have to follow the rules in Tennessee. And if it's anything like Alabama, where I live, I know like you have to go out there and print your specifications and put it out for bid and accept bids. Well, a lot of stuff now in construction is running 60 to 80% more expensive. Part of that is just supply chain issues we've seen over the course of the pandemic and things like that. There's a backlog of construction projects. But then part of that too is you have to adjust some of your plans now to account for some of these things. Maybe you weren't going to have an extra locker and dressing room that you now have to have for female staff. Maybe you're, you didn't have, you had one combined nutrition area for home and visitors versus having two separate prep areas and you have to redo your plans now. If your municipality has already pledged funding and your bids come in higher than the funding amount, you either have to go back and get more funding or the, the, the team has to cover the cost themselves. So interesting dynamic there. And then JJ Rick brings up a really good point is what happens if multiple parks in one league all fail? So, okay. When they restructured the minor leagues a few years ago, a lot of, not a lot of, but some of the teams that lost their affiliations were in the East, were in the Northeast, we're in the Midwest, and MLB was able to help them work out something else. One of them became the Pioneer League, and it's like a summer wood bat league for college players, things like that. You have additional ballparks, you have additional teams, uh, and things like that that you could, 
let's say somebody in the Southern League, in, double, in the AA Southern League, uh, did not meet the standards and you had to pull the license. There's other ballparks around that you could move a team to. Columbus, Georgia has a minor league ballpark that's just sitting there. They use for city stuff. It's a municipal thing. They lost their team and haven't replaced it yet. You could move somebody to Columbus, Georgia and make them the Columbus, Georgia. There's a military base there. So the Columbus fighting tanks. I don't know. But the West Coast, there's not a lot of options for that. And there's a good chart that JJ had in the piece. It's like average age of the facilities. Uh, Southern League, double A, 14 and a half years old. Texas League, 15 and a half years old. Uh, and most, most of these parks, you know, are 1990 or newer. Because in case you didn't realize, that was 32 years ago, guys. If you, if you remember 1990, you're older than you think you are. 32 years. But the California League, the average age of the ballparks in the California League is almost 44 years. The Northwest League is 44. And the Florida State League is 46. So the West Coast, not a lot of independent teams, the high cost of real estate, things like that out there and the travel because it's so big. What happens if like four or six teams in the California League all say, hey, we're not going to meet the new standards? Do you have the like do you have the spots to take away four player development licenses and go find four other teams that then can upgrade their stadiums to meet these requirements? So it's going to be really interesting to see what happens. And I imagine there's going to be some sort of interim enforcement mechanism besides just taking away the license. There's going to be something in the middle between that. And I'm sure that if you're legitimately working on it, if you're having a construction renovation project and it doesn't finish until 2026, I'm sure they're not going to take your team away from you because you're legitimately trying. But if you just say, I'm not doing this, I wonder what's going to happen. And I think part of that's going to depend on how many other teams in your league also do that and where are you. Great show this week. Really having a ton of fun with this. Uh, We have a a Farm Friday coming up with the Royals, so stay tuned for that. Uh, if you have questions for the mailbag, we do those every single Monday. I'm on Twitter at Crosby Baseball. The show is on Twitter at Locked On Farm. Or you can email us, LockedOnMLBProspects at gmail.com. Uh, but until then, this has been Locked On MLB Prospects. Uh-huh.